Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. There are so many ways to engage in the healing of the world. Sometimes it's self-healing, sometimes direct service to our co-travelers on the planet, and sometimes we heal by helping create the structures that enable people to work together. One of those structures is government, and especially in a democracy, we hope to work together to steer government to the good of the people. We'll be sitting down today with two guests who work for what I believe was the first religious advocacy organization set up to directly lobby our National Congress for the Good of All, Friends Committee on National Legislation, or FCNL. First, we'll speak with Christine Ashley, who is Quaker Field Secretary for FCNL, and a little later on, she'll be joined by Young Adult Program Manager Katie Breslin to speak to me before a live, though quiet, audience here at the 2011 Friends General Conference gathering held on the campus of the University of Toledo, Ohio. Christine, Katie, and FCNL in general provide a lever to tilt our government to the good with hope, love, and joy. Christine, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Excellent. I'm so happy to be here, Mark. It seems like we just met each other yesterday in March. Last year. Last year. Yes. (laughs) So you've got beautiful green glasses. Do you have them in multicolors? Is this a Christine thing? I've not seen those kind before. This is what happens when you are reaching that critical age of 50 plus. The eyesight tends to shift So not only can I not see beyond like six inches from my face onwards, but now I'm finding that I'm having a hard time reading closer than six inches. So I have peepers. And yes, these blue planet peepers come in many colors and they're made out of bamboo on the side. Bamboo, that's it. So they're an environmental (laughs) statement as well as a health accessory. Yes, and of course they're funky. (laughs) Which we would expect nothing less from Christine Ashley. Was the job description for FCNL, for Friends Committee on National Legislation, did it include a requirement that you be funky? I think the primary requirement for the Quaker Field Secretary job, which I started about two and a half years ago, was this deep sense of commitment from the heart to travel and be amongst friends and see how we can connect with one another from the heart and look at how we might encourage witness every moment that we are awake. I think Dwight L. Wilson just talked about this two Bible study hours ago when he talked about, you know, every moment as being an act of prayer. And in fact, for me, that was the big draw for this job. I'm like, wow, how can I bring my whole self to being a friend in the world and constantly get that sort of encouragement as well as challenge? So the funkiness is something I probably just added later. You were head of school at Scattergood Friends School over in Iowa, right there where Herbert Hoover, it was his home meeting before, well before he was president. That's right. And you were transforming the lives of students. And then you moved to Washington, D.C., this little bit of a change of venue. 
Was it a desire to change more in the world? Was it just, you know, you didn't want to be able to hear the birds singing to you? That you <laughs> what led you to that migration? Yeah, that's such a great question. First, I was led to Scattergood Friends School from the Metro D.C. area, where I had been working in a Montessori school actually had started kind of a morning worship time within the Montessori. And I was looking for something that was going to help my whole family kind of reconnect as a body. And I was looking for community with and amongst friends. And as a Midwesterner, because I was raised in Minnesota, you know, when I heard that Scattergood Friends School had an opening and was looking for a head, I actually never dreamed that I would be offered the job you know, threw my hat in out of this sense of kind of fantastic possibility. Because the things that I had heard about Scattergood Friends School was that it was this incredible nexus of vibrant, young, creative high schoolers, teachers who wanted to use experiential learning and, and play with that, integrate learning with this incredible organic farm that was part of this 126 acres, and basically go be part of a grand adventure. You know, this school started maybe 130 years ago now, and at some point in the Depression, it had had to close its doors. And a group of 20-somethings, so the story goes, went to AFSC and went to friends to raise a bundle of money to reopen that school as a refugee hostel between 1939 and 1943. And the local Iowa Yearly Meeting conservative friends were very instrumental in supporting that vision. 168 people went through that hostel at that time until our government closed the borders and did not let any more refugees in. That story and then how it reverted back to a school to be the first school that I understand that actually offered placement for Japanese American and African American students directly after 1943. All of those pieces of Scattergood spoke to me about this vibrant and radical expression of love. So that's why I went to Scattergood. But then you left. And by the way, I looked in the thesaurus, and under the word vibrant, it had as a synonym, Christine. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> so I did It, it would seem like a perfect fit for yeah, you. Yeah, really something that precipitated me looking to come back to the D.C. area were two things. One, thinking about my kids. Where was the next great step for them in their educational journey? And two, how could I possibly turn away from this brand new job that seemed to have my name all over it, which was Quaker Field Secretary, you know, be a connector, travel amongst friends, all friends, listen deeply to where concerns and leadings are coming and see how we could actually make our Quaker witness alive and fervent and vibrant. So two big reasons why I left Iowa. And again, that's for the organization Friends Committee on National Legislation, which was significant. You mentioned uh, the genesis of Scattergood Friends School, the genesis of FCNL. It was actually born during World War II. I think 1943, 1943. was the year. That's right. Uh, and if you do the math, actually, that means that we're celebrating our 75th year. And how I've referenced this time period for FCNL, Friends Committee on National Legislation, today, back to 1943, is thinking about what was happening to the world and with the world at 1943. And let's fast forward today, you know, 75 years later. 
can we see some parallels, you know, where Quakers have risen to the occasion and been challenging the status quo, which seems to be calling for the opposite of what we think about as friends. Instead of seeing that of God and everyone, you know, we're seeing a rise of hatred and bigotry in the world. And certainly in 1943, we're, we're interning Japanese Americans. We have many, many different ills in our society, which we still are working on today, especially in terms of institutionalized racism. And we can see this attitude with refugees today, actually, about how right now we've just seen how the Supreme Court has actually said, you know, no, this travel ban actually is not prejudicial against Muslims, right? No matter how prejudicial it is, as long as you include North Korea in the list. Right. There we go. So FCNL, Friends Committee of National Legislation, is born in 1943 mm -hmm. in the midst of World War II. There's a significant amount of fear, hate towards Germans and towards Japanese. Racism, as you said, is alive and thriving. We've just come off the 1930s where lynchings were so prevalent. And I just did an interview a couple weeks ago with the woman who wrote a book called Religion Around Billie Holiday, who is famous for the song Strange Fruit, which is about lynchings. That's the period that it's born in. 75 years later, there's so many policies that seem wrong-headed to us. But Friends Committee on National Legislation sits there with a building that faces, I think, the Senate building. Yeah, that's right. And it's right across there. And so you get to put big signs up across, <laughs> staring over so that the senators, as they come in and out, have to see them. I did visit there last year when I was in Washington, D.C., can you say anything about the signs that you have put up? You have put up signs, right? Oh, you, yes. Yeah, with, yeah. Like what? Well, one sign that seems to be super relevant uh, in many of the different legislative policies that are on the dock right now is this sign that says, love thy neighbor, and then in parentheses, no exceptions. One that's really pertinent, especially if you think about immigration right now and the fact of our refugee legislation right now, criminal justice reform is so desperately needed, you know, thinking about all the ways that we're thinking about othering people. But what I find about that particular sign for myself, love thy neighbor, no exceptions, is this idea that that's also my message for me. There are many factions and people in the country right now where I'm really struggling to love some of my neighbors. I think that's really important to see that, you know, in a way that love thy neighbor, no exceptions, that's facing directly across to the Senate Heart Building seems to be a bit of a, you know, Quaker fist in the air for many of our members of Congress. But I also think that is a good reminder for all of us to think about how are we addressing our own ability to meet one another, and so I think that Love Thy Neighbor, No Exceptions has been very, very powerful. The other one that I think that is a little controversial was a banner that said, Quakers, silent in worship, loud against gun violence. So that was kind of a fun one that has been emblazoned on that building, too. One of the things that's very interesting about FCNL is this lobbying arm of a nonprofit I think that they were kind of template-creating back in 1943. I don't know if it was the first religious one, but it's one of the very first religious advocacy organizations, religious lobby. 
a religious lobby that's not just, we're not advocating for Quakers, we're advocating for that of God and everyone, right? Yeah, I would just say that we are considered the largest and longest running faith-based lobbying organization in Washington, D.C. And I would say, friends, that it's it's remarkable to see that Quakers have this huge organizational imprint on Capitol Hill, literally 20 feet away from the Senate Heart building. It's pretty phenomenal. And the fact of the matter is we've got over 50 people in that building that are working to galvanize the thousands of friends and friends of friends for grassroots citizen advocacy. So, you know, let's go back to 1943, where we've got, I think it's 22 people who are Richmond, Indiana, and they're dreaming up an office that's going to be situated, I think it was in the basement of the Friends Meeting House in Washington. Fast forward 75 years later, we've got a brand new Quaker Welcome Center, which is set up really explicitly for furthering our ability to train and develop grassroots lobbying and to host off-the-record conversations with members and staffers and to really push the envelope because we know that the more of us there are who are delivering these messages of unyielding peace building, the more we make a true imprint in our nation. I'm going to direct some questions to someone else who just walked in. Katie Breslin is Young Adult Program Manager. Christine has been there for a couple years. When did you join the crew there? So I started August of 2015, and it's been such a beautiful journey. I've enjoyed every moment, the ups and downs of being here at the Friends Committee on National Legislation. And you're the Young Adult Program Manager. Describe to me what that means. And I think particularly in this age, I see such an uprising of youth energy were you anticipating those coming in? Is that where you came in, or are you just one in a long line of young adult program managers? I'm a new, a relatively new position. The person in my position before me was only there for about a year. FCNL saw very early on that this generation of millennials and of Gen Z were going to be very politically active. And they'd been planning for quite a few years before I got there and before my position was funded to invest in young adults in particular. Quite frankly, they were one of the first places in Washington, D.C. that saw this uprising of young adults and then decided to make structured efforts to engage young adult organizers. And so I was actually not familiar with friends when I first started at FCNL. I was drawn by the incredible structures that they had in their young adult programs. And in falling in love with the young adult programs at FCNL, I fell in love with friends. And I think that happens quite a bit to those of us that have strong faith convictions and care deeply about peace. I think it's, you know, pretty revolutionary. Bringing young people into congressional offices is still considered revolutionary because those are oftentimes not the voices that are being heard in lobbying efforts. Is it true that there are younger people going into these offices than used to go? Yeah, we've always had interns in our offices, or we call them young fellows, who've invested their time and energy into lobbying work. And uh, we've had a long history of that. But the amount of people and the, the breadth of people, of friends, of people from diverse communities, of people of color, of people from low-income backgrounds, FCNL has invested in all of them and, and made sure to empower that lots of different voices could be part of the conversation, not just those that have access to Washington, D.C. So young people have always been at FCNL and been part of our history but the welcoming of a larger depth and a diverse depth of people is a fairly new and encouraging effort by the Friends Committee on National Legislation. 
I think I should point something out. You know, people are listening to this at some 36 stations nationwide, including online, podcast, and so on. So a number of people who are listening may have no idea that friends and Quakers are really synonyms, that they mean the same thing, and that the official name of Quakers is Religious Society of Friends. So UKD did not start, as you said, as a friend. You, I'm sure you had friends, and you were a friend, but you weren't a friend. I was not a friend. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's very confusing. So anyway, what roots do you come from? Is it religious, spiritual? What has turned you into the dynamo you are at the FCNL offices? You know, I was a Catholic reform activist and someone that was very invested in Catholic reform communities and, and in some degree I'm still invested in those communities. And so I've invested a lot of time in women's ordination and some reproductive justice work within the Catholic framework because I've always been someone who's drawn to social justice and specifically thinking about those who have the least among us and how do we empower those voices. And so it was very natural for me to find Quakers and to really resonate with them. And I attended a young adult conference at Pendle Hill. I like to think that Pendle Hill, FCNL is what introduced me to friends, but Pendle Hill is what made me a friend. I attended a conference there and fell deeply in love in my personal reflection and discernment with friends and realized it was what I was looking for. And so I've been so grateful to be able to be in an organization that, you know, if I need a few minutes to do some personal reflection and discernment on my programs, they're not going to be banging down my door trying to find me. They understand that I need those 30 minutes to make sure that the work that we are doing is spirit-led. That's made me really grateful to work there and to invest in my personal relationship. So and that's what I, I like about FCNL is that people come as whole people and they can discuss their faith, even if it is different than friends. And FCNL is invested in my faith journey. And we continue to not only invest in the lobbying efforts and encouraging young people to do this work, but also see lobbying as part of their faith practice, which I definitely do. I am really very interested in hearing how effective such work is. I mean, you're not donating a billion dollars to all these different campaigns, and so maybe the senators and representatives won't actually listen to you, the president. I want to explore that. But first, I want to be clear. As you said, Katie, you know, you're talking to other people. It's not all Quakers that you're working with. You're working with any number of people, and you, Christine, likewise. Your title, Christine, actually involves connecting with Quakers across the country. So yours is more Quaker-centric. Katie, how much is yours Quaker-centric? Is this, are there Catholics coming in, Mennonites? Where are these youth coming from that you're helping empower and activate in terms of changing our government? Well, we hit the road. We go to Quaker colleges. We go to colleges in places where there aren't Quakers. We sometimes get organizers in places where there aren't friends and they have to find they go to three-person meetings in Louisiana and try to find community there. And so we, we really do in trying to find the breadth of experiences, especially of who is affected by a lot of the issues that FCNO works on. We invest in those communities as well. And we bring these people together um, so we can have dialogue and talk about our shared experiences and our shared common values. And that is the beauty. That is where the strength comes from because you know we have organizers from, for instance, as I mentioned in Louisiana, learning from people from Oklahoma about their experiences and building upon that, those experiences in a faithful way is really beautiful. So we have young adults that are Quaker. We have young adults of all different types of religious backgrounds. 
But what they share is this commonality around wanting to see a world free of war and the threat of war. We see uh, of the we seeks that we see, and uh, that really resonates with them. And it feels very radical to them to feel connected in that way, to envision a new world together. And I think that that's what we do with the young adult program is that we allow young adults the opportunity to dream about a world where their values are reflected in society. You started a statement that I'm used to, I've been listening to for 40 plus years, a, a world free of war and threat of war. Christine or Katie, do you have the full statement there? Yes. I would say it was so awesome to hear last night. We had a storyteller, Laron Williams, and he started the whole storytelling time with the, at his plenary here at FGC, at Friends General Conference gathering, saying that he was seeking a world free of war and the threat of war. And the other three statements that we call the we seeks that really are the guiding platform for everything we do. You know, we include, we seek a society with equity and justice for all. We seek a community where every person's potential may be fulfilled. And we seek an earth restored. So these four statements encapsulate and should be captured in every single piece of legislative work that friends and friends of friends work on alongside the Friends Committee on National Legislation. And I should say that, you know, we are part of a very exciting and empowered group of interfaith advocacy groups in Washington, D.C., and we're always looking to connect with bodies across the country. And And I think that those mission statements, those four statements of the We Seeks, are especially right now, reaching deeply into our hearts when we think about the critical choices and challenges that we have to face in the world that we're occupying right now. And as a mom, I have to say that those we seeks make me feel very, very lucky to be able to work with the Friends Committee on National Legislation when I'm thinking about what I'm bequeathing my children. I'm like, I got to be working like day and night, minute by minute for these exact challenges. Because if I don't do that, I am not doing justice by my children and every other child. Katie, how do you relate to those fundamental we seeks? I found the job listing for FCNL on a listserv that doesn't exist anymore. It was a total accident that I found it. And the first thing I found when I went to the website was the we seeks. And I read that over and it felt so unlike what I had seen in Washington. It felt like hope. And I had been, you know, working so hard. I'd been working in reproductive justice and felt a moment where I didn't didn't see any forward progress. I felt stuck. I felt like I was constantly defending what I believed in. And to see those we seeks on the website was the a moment where I finally was like, oh, there are other people that seek this world. There's a world beyond just constantly working to save our humanity, that there is a world where our humanity could be the norm. And so they mean so much to me. I see them every day. They're all over our office. Every time a student group comes in to visit us, I make sure to point them out and read them to them. And you could see the look on their faces when they see these We Seeks. And I say they've been around before I was born. Those We Seeks have been there. I actually met a friend who was part of the original conversation around the We Seeks an hour ago. I was talking to him about it. And it's incredible to think that those We Seeks came in about the 70s. And they're still relevant today. That's still the world that I'm seeking. And friends continue to seek. 
it is interesting that they're maybe 40 years old or, or so, because some people might think they're just the popular PC generation, you know, that that's what we're going to say. But in fact, this is a lifestyle. It's, it's a long-term commitment. And one of the things that makes me both happy and sad is the number of people who have aspirations in similar directions, but who are not rooted in community, so they don't have a sense of it continuing on. It's Burnout is not a difficult thing to attain. <laughs> burnout happens so easily. I think I was feeling very burnt out before I got to FCNL. And I'm not saying, you know, there's been a, a lot of rough moments in the last few years um, where I felt that I needed to be held or that this work was so much. But I'm constantly reminded how beautiful our community is. I once lost my car keys at the 75th anniversary for FCNL. I had to trust the community to find my car keys. And the amount of people that came up to me just very concerned uh, about my well-being and about the fact that my car keys were not in my hand. Friends crawling under tables and opening up bags that weren't their own. I felt very cared for. And I continue to feel very cared for by friends across the country who resonate so deeply with not only our we seeks, but also with our staff and our updates and, and do deeply care about me as a person, which is such a great feeling to be held by a community like that. The people we're talking to here today are Christine Ashley and Katie Breslin. They both work with Friends Committee on National Legislations, and they're my guests here today for Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website. Northern Spirit Radio is the words you should not forget. You'll find us on the web, and you'll find links to FCNL.org, where you can track these people down. They're part of the staff at FCNL. You'll find all of our guests for the last 13 years, and we've had some marvelous people doing healing work for the world. It's inspirational to me to do this work because I get to hear people who are making that positive difference, which is exactly, of course, what FCNL aims at. Also on the site, you'll find a place for comments. I do not see near enough comments, and I'm not going to scold you. I'm just going to implore you. Post a comment when you come to the site. Let me know what you're thinking. Make our communication two-way. There's also a donate button. That's how this full-time work is supported, not by government, not by corporations. It's by listeners, by people who really want to see this work proceed. Please donate when you come, but even more important, and I don't even know in Washington, D.C., how many community radio stations there are, if there's really good ones. Not public radio, but community radio stations, which are run largely, typically, by volunteers. They're supported locally by the community, and they provide a local alternative voice for both music and news that you just don't get elsewhere. There aren't limitations in the way that most other stations experience their limitations. And, you know, when your media in your country is owned 90% plus by just six hands, six corporations, it's far too limiting. Six opinions can prevent you from hearing anything about news, and community radio stations provide that alternative. So please start by visiting your local community radio station, supporting them with your hands and your wallet. Again, Christine Ashley is here with us. She is Quaker Field Secretary for Friends Committee on National Legislations. Katie Breslin is the Young Adult Program Manager right there in Washington, D.C. I want to get into some of the detail about what FCNL, Friends Committee on National Legislation, actually does and accomplishes. Because in this time, I think, Katie, you used the word, it felt to you like hope. 
I have that same sense, and it's so easy in this day and age not to feel hope. I don't know how many people are going into depression, despair, because they feel as if the administration is destroying all the things that are good in the world. It's not true that it's all good things being destroyed, but there is an overwhelming feeling that's coming on. What are you aiming at? What are you accomplishing in this difficult age of despair? Yeah, I think that that's, um, you know, I'd be dishonest if I didn't say that there are times when we don't feel hope at FCNL, but it's helpful to have the community and the support. And we have, you know, being held by our priorities um, that friends give us, the fact that they are invested in us and they give us priorities to work on and clear directions of what type of legislation we can work on. Uh, is really helpful in that way. And we do see the occasional victory. We have a peace building bill that's working on the Ellie Wissell Atrocities Prevention Act that just passed through committee. And that's an incredible victory. We actually decorated the lobbyist desks to because we have to celebrate all of these little victories. I think the other part for me, I, I like to think that I sit closest to the hope at FCNL. It's why I have the best job there. Uh, besides, of course, Diane Randall, who's our executive secretary. And I get to work with young people who uh, reinvest in this process of democracy. You know, a lot of us are really worried about our institutions and really worried about Congress and their ability to govern. And giving young people the agency and the opportunity to build this dialogue with Congress to give them the strength to do the right thing when there's so much at stake in our country and willingness to say, hey, I disagree with you, but let's have a dialogue about shared values and see where we can come together to really do the right thing for what is right in our country. We've seen time and again that a lot of these organizers continue their relationships even after they're done with our programs because they are invested in these relationships. And if no one is talking to Congress and if people aren't invested in having these dialogues, then we're going to continue to fall further and further away from the democracy that we're hoping for. And so I think that that's why I'm so hopeful about our future. I think that that's why I continue to go to work every day with a smile on my face, not only because Christine Ashley, who's the most optimistic person I've ever met, is sitting next to me, <laughs> but also because I do deeply believe that the work that we're doing, the witness that we are playing on Capitol Hill is really powerful and really powerful to a lot of people. So I think I start with my own personal experience that says that transformation is possible. Like I've experienced that 180 degree in my life on several occasions where I was touched by spirit and I was changed. I find that that seed is something that we lean into in the very fibers of how we do our work as a body. And the piece for me that's really been so exciting and something that I love to speak about with friends is about the fact that, you know, we are ordinary people who are being called right now to do extraordinary things. And the extraordinary things that we're called to do is to say, go in to our members of Congress and speak our truth. Like, that's pretty extraordinary right now, because there are a lot of things that seem to be standing in the way of the ordinary person that says, you know, you don't have power. The structures are too big. It's all stacked against us, you know, and there's no room to breathe and no room to, to move. It just looks so bleak and so hard and so impossible to navigate. And the story that, well, there are quite a few stories that come to mind about moments where ordinary friends 
came through the, the FCNL lobbying training and then went and did their visit with their member of Congress and something happened. Something unexpected happened. And there's a story of a group of North Carolina Quakers who, during annual meetings several years ago, we were actually pushing for this bill that Katie was just talking about, the Elie Wiesel Genocide and Atrocities Prevention Act. They went into Tom Tillis's office and they met with the foreign affairs staffer and attache. He's a Marine and they're talking about, you know, we need to finance diplomacy. You know, that's so important. And for the first 15 minutes, there seemed to be no receptivity there and more kind of like a hard, fast, no, we're not interested. Something happened in that quality of open-hearted conversation and dialogue. And I do believe spirit was in the room. So much so that two days later, here's Senator Tillis from North Carolina, who somehow decides that he's going to co-sponsor this bill to fund diplomacy. Like that was not on anybody's radar (laughs) at all. These are ordinary people delivering their messages of what they believed in and how they saw the world. And it was picked up. I hear that story and I get like goosebumps, you know, because I think that we are serving a unique moment in history as friends where we are actually being called as leaders right now to step up and speak truth and believe that, you know, we have to let go of our fears, our anxieties, our sense that of the entire impossibility of the situations right now. And we need to be faithful and be able to be faithful witnesses in the world. That means letting go, leaning into our community, knowing that we don't have to be perfect, we don't have to know all the answers, that there's something much greater than us that is leading us forward and leading us in to speak truth. With the intense division that we have right now, It seems so often when I look at, I guess maybe on some of the most key votes, I see party line votes, and I don't see a Tillis or someone being pulled over to the other side. I don't see that happening in those votes. Am I missing something? Are they just not reporting the votes when that happens? I'm kind of thinking that there are issues where you end up finding commonality, and there's some issues where where Donald Trump's administration goes to bat and says, no, if you step out of line here, you're dead, (laughs) you know, that you will be kicked out of office. That's a great question, because it's something that we hear a lot about. You know, we see these party lines, we hear a lot about party division and voting on party lines. A lot of the conversations that our lobbyists are part of are conversations that might not hit the votes yet, that a lot of the work that needs to be done is still in the conversation stage. And so a lot of our work on climate change, for instance, which our young organizers have worked on for two of the four years of our Advocacy Corps program, surrounds around a caucus. There's a bipartisan climate solutions caucus in the House that has over 70 members now. When we first started working on this, it had about 30 members. So it's grown quite a bit in the last few years. And where we are with that climate change conversation in a bipartisan way is dialogue still. We still have a lot of members who feel the need to talk through their values to make votes that are not only reflective of their constituencies, but also reflective of their faith and what their party would like to see. We do track small victories. We might not be seeing the big victories yet on the House side, but 
We believe in that incremental change, small steps forward. And if you go on our website, fcnl.org slash Congress, you can see some of those votes taking place that we're tracking. We don't just track the big votes. We don't just track when the Affordable Care Act is being repealed. We attract the small votes as well. And sometimes that's where you can see the small victories. You know, it can be very frustrating when you see a vote and you're like, but we had this conversation. I thought we had this understanding. But we have to invest in not only having these difficult conversations with people that disagree with us, but also have difficult conversations with people that do agree with us about how do you bring more people on board. We spend a lot of time not only talking to people that disagree, but also investing in our friends and our allies and saying, instead of using this language to try to throw that cheap punch, why don't you try to have a conversation with this member from your state about this really important issue to you? And that's a different type of lobbying ask. So we're really invested in those conversations as well. So I did want to point out one other element of the bipartisan climate caucus that Katie brought up that for me is really, really important. So its nickname is like the Noah's Ark caucus, right? Because you can't get on unless you bring somebody from the other party. So that means it's equally divided between Republicans and Democrats, right? Cool beans, Now, the other aspect of this climate caucus is that the tremendous growth, and I think today it's up to 84 members. I think the interesting thing about this growth is that it happened after the Paris Climate Accord went down when this administration came into office. That, to me, is a significant thing, where actually there was a clamoring after the Paris Climate Accord was dismantled by this administration There was a clamor for ongoing conversation to say, we need to do something about this. And the conversation is not getting furthered in some quarters. So it needs to happen with us. And we're going to have to figure out the space. We're going to have to dedicate every month a conversation with one another. So we've actually sponsored two forums in the new Quaker Welcome Center with a Republican and a Democrat talking about how unusual it is in Washington, D.C., and how this authorship and leadership that FCNL and Quakers have asked us to do with the Bipartisan Climate Caucus is changing a tenor in Washington, D.C. So that, to me, is really something that you're not going to see in the headlines, right? But that gives us hope that it is not this homogenized, nobody's playing in the sandbox together. That being said, we, have, we really have a lot of work to say. We expect our members to work things out. And so right now, exactly that needs to happen. We've got the House that put together a terrible farm bill. And we have the Senate that passed a farm bill that FCNL says, great, you know, because the Senate bill is supporting the food stamp program, the SNAP program, and the House bill wants to pretty much put bureaucratic measures in to kick 2 million people off and to make it very, very challenging for people to get food on the table. People are already trying to decide what meal they're going to eat and what meal they're not going to eat. This next farm bill, if that House bill gets through committee, that will be devastating for us. So we have a pivotal moment right now where some good work happened with citizen advocacy with the Senate. Now the Senate and the House have to get together and figure out this bill. This is the time where we have to actually draw together and talk to everybody to say we expect the same kind of bipartisan work that you did with the Senate to happen at this next articulation of the bill. Wow, it's it's amazing to hear what's going on underneath. I was wondering if there was any cachet that Quakers are bringing 
to this lobbying that would not happen if it wasn't a religious group. I mean, some people might count it against you. You're religious, therefore you're idiots, right? Because religion in some sectors of the world are seen as lacking in intelligence. Generally, the Quaker advocacy by most people is considered to be liberal, but it is deeply religious, deeply connected to God. It's connected to that of God and all. It's connected to doing God's work in the world. Does that at all help when you're actually talking to people who might be conservative, but they're religious conservatives? I would tell a brief story of a certain senator from Iowa named Chuck Grassley, who is a Republican. He is somebody who has had a dramatic 180 in his relationship with criminal justice. And in fact, right now, he has done a 180 and said he is not up for, he's not supporting prison reform like Cornyn, but he is actually calling for McConnell to bring together a very bipartisan Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act onto the floor. And what it seems to me that has been something pivotal for Chuck Grassley and that aided him in this transformation is definitely along this cord of there is that of God in everyone, that we are all capable of change and possibility. We are all here to reach our potential. And for him, he's talked about how you need a fair shake is what he said. You know, and he's like, people have not gotten a fair shake. So for me, he's got something there within him that has allowed him to change his mind, which sometimes has different connotations on the Hill. And he has a strong sense about how there needs to be equity and justice for all. So I do think that that's a good example of how spirituality and religion can be a positive entree into conversation to what otherwise might be hard dialogue and might end up with dead ends. And in, in this case, I think Chuck Grassley has a connectivity to his Iowa Quakers in particular, who, by the way, just met, quote unquote, Chuck Grassley over Zoom on the computer at 8 a.m. at the Quaker Welcome Center about three weeks ago where Chuck Grassley walked across the street and we had all these 70 and 80 year old Iowa Quakers with headphones on peering at him from the computer screen. <laughs> and Katie, what's your experience perspective on that? I've worked with faith communities uh, most of my career. And I can tell you that people of faith have a reputation for showing up. And I think it's because what drives us, what really makes us keep going is the divine, is our connection with God, with our connection with the spirit. And I also think that the way that friends lobby and people of faith lobby resonates uh, and kind of cuts through a lot of the tape that and the, the dehumanizing nature of advocacy, because we're storytellers. I think people of faith naturally are drawn and support things because of how it impacts communities. I was in a lobby visit with a young woman who's about my age, she's about 27, and she was pregnant with her first child. And she was living in Alaska, and was a military wife. So it was with her husband in Virginia, but had owned a house in Alaska where they originally were part of a military base. And this was last year during the healthcare vote. She's a woman of faith, you know, 
pregnant and very concerned about maternal health in Alaska and was really concerned that the Affordable Care Act would be repealed and that women in Alaska, especially Native women in Alaska, would not have the access they need to maternal health if the Affordable Care Act had been repealed. We talked to uh, Senator Murkowski's staff. We sat together and uh, she told her story about why she, as a woman of faith, felt very compelled to come in and tell her story, especially living in Virginia at the moment, but still having constituency in Alaska. And the staff returned to us and said, thank you for not just yelling statistics at me. That's what she said to me. Thank you for not just yelling statistics at me. It's these personal experiences and these stories and your values that really change the way that we think about public policy. Everyone has their own facts. Everyone has their own statistics. But I think people of faith in particular bring in this element of the need to bring more people in. And we have a book full of stories. And that was what compels a lot of us to keep going. And so I think the connection between a religious people as storytellers is really an important piece that we continue to bring with us. I think you maybe, Christine, know that I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa. I don't think you maybe heard that before, Katie. But one of the things that I experienced going in the Peace Corps, some people think that you're going to be a Peace Corps volunteer, go to another country, and you're going to save and be a wonderful person for those people. And you might. You might. You might actually do something really significant. But the Peace Corps actually lists three purposes, one of which is to do that good work, but a second one, which is to change the people there, their perception of what Americans like. And the third one, which I found to be the most profound, was so that the volunteers themselves are transformed. When we go to another place, experience something different, we get changed. I'm wondering how significant it is, Katie, in the young adult program that you work with for Friends Committee on National Legislation, how much the people who are doing the lobbying themselves are being changed. Yeah, I think that that's a great question because it definitely has been my experience that young people that come through our programs have a new investment in Congress as a potential way to make change. Many of our young adults come in, they know the history books, they know the civics lessons about Congress and lobbying and but to really be able to see, oh, I can actually email my elected official and they will take a meeting with me and they will take me seriously. They can know my name in the office. I think that's one of the most revolutionary things is that a lot of our organizers will then become well-known names in these offices just because they continue to follow up. I've seen personal transformation. I get to the extreme privilege of being able to talk to young adults, uh, many of them when they're first part of their careers or when they're first moments in activism. And so I've seen many of our young adults come from voting in their first election and you know feeling maybe disappointed by the outcomes to then being and taking on the autonomy of change, of making sure that their voices are heard in Congress. And that's why I think I have the best job at the Friends Committee on National Legislation, because I see this personal transformation day in and day out, not only in our Advocacy Corps program, but at our Spring Lobby Weekend, in our Young Fellow program, and as well as our summer interns. It's really transformational to give people the access and autonomy that they have to understand that Congress is actually there to listen to them and that they can have a voice there. And Katie Breslin, your young adult program manager, Christine Ashley, as the Quaker Friends Secretary, you must see that with a different group of people. 
as Katie was speaking, I was getting antsy because I was like, oh my gosh, this is the perfect time to invite all listeners right now to a possibility of experiencing a lobby training and actually going in district or coming to DC and going into your own member and experience exactly what she's talking about. We're able to offer now on a weekly basis, either in person or even over Zoom, which is a computer program, a lobby training that honestly is going to very easily structure how any citizen from a fourth grader on up can go into an office, greet their member, say thank you for something, tell their member one thing that they think they is really important for the member to support or not support. Tell the connecting story, like why I care, and then say goodbye, you know, and and it's been so amazing being part of this kind of weekly lobby training at the Quaker Welcome Center with Witness Wednesday, where we've had a group from uh, Allegheny College, a community college come in, and every single one of those people were benefiting from the food stamp program. Most of the people in that room had never fathomed before that they would be coming and meeting their member of Congress. And yet, so this was a big deal. When they came back after that meeting, they were so jazzed. I mean, they were like bright lights because as a couple of people said, they never thought that that was something that they could or should do. And to be welcomed and to be respectfully heard and to have a dialogue with a member of Congress and to realize that that is actually the whole point of citizen advocacy is tremendously empowering. How exciting that we're able to invite people from all across the country right now to engage with their member of Congress. And an hour or two-hour lobby training, you got this. You said, Christine, that it was fourth graders and up. What do you got against third graders? I have not had (laughs) third graders before. I will. My disclaimer is that I've been a fourth through sixth grade Montessori teacher. So I just don't know third graders. (laughs) Okay. I was really wondering, you know, you're talking about people coming from the community college, Katie. You're talking about people coming from this meeting or you're drawing people all over. How many of the people that are coming in are Quakers and how many are you just reaching out to the world? Because Quakers are a tiny drop in this entire nation. If you only depended on Quakers to get there, you'd still have a decent handful, but you must be drawing a lot of other folks in. I'll speak briefly just on the fact that we actually have a tremendous program right now called the Advocacy Team. We are engaging over 94 teams right now all over the country. About a third of the people who are participating look to be Quakers. So two-thirds are people who are coming in who feel a connection to the work that we're doing, to the We Seek statements, and to the way that we're saying we want to change the world. We're not going in and banging on the door and ranting and raving. We're actually saying in this advocacy team, friends and friends of friends, we can actually right now build a relationship, which means we're in it for the long haul with you, which means we can say what we appreciate and we can say what we need you to work on and we can disagree with you and we're not going away. So if a third of those people are Quakers, this to me is sounding like a tremendous opportunity for Quakers to reach out and connect to the rest of their surrounding communities and go where the people are, right? Invite your local community members to be part of something that can be pivotal and hope-filled and transformational. 
And Katie, what's your experience working with the young adult population? Yeah, I definitely agree with everything Christine said and definitely see that there is not only friends, but other people, friends of friends, as we call them, participating in our programs. But going back to what Christine was talking about with our advocacy teams, which do have young adults as part of them, I was talking to a friend here at the gathering about their experience in an advocacy team. And he expressed in extreme enthusiasm that this advocacy team model created an avenue for friends to reach out to their local community in a more authentic way. And so his most excitement about it was not only having this relationship with the member of Congress's office, but also in talking to union organizers and other people that were impacted by the legislation that they were working on to really invest in this relationship with the member of Congress. It was really very helpful for that meeting to then have stronger ties and use this advocacy team as a way to have stronger ties in their community. And we see that with their young adult program. We, all of our advocacy organizers, which is our 10-month-long program, they all connect with their local friends' meetings, even if they aren't Quaker. They are required to connect with their friends. And of course, friends are always enthusiastic to help young people as they're not only seeking what to do next with their careers, but also for many of them, this becomes a support community for them as they're considering things like grad school, what to do after graduation. And friends are always enthusiastic to help them with that. But I think it brings a richness to our programs to see people from all different backgrounds doing this work. It makes us a much more authentic lobby to show that not only are we giving this perspective of friends, but we're also bringing in people that share our values from all over the world. We have to go now, but I would like once more if one of either you, Christine, or Katie could read the We Seeks. I love them so much. I wanted to read a different comment, so I'm going to let Katie read. We seek a world free of war and the threat of war. We seek a society with equity and justice for all. We seek a community where every person's potential may be fulfilled, and we seek an earth restored. I just wanted to end with a quote from our first FCNL executive secretary from 1943, which for me is super hopeful and galvanizing and challenging. So E. Raymond Wilson said, we ought to be willing to work for causes which will not be won now, but cannot be won in the future unless the goals are staked out now and worked for energetically over a period of time. I've actually got tears in my eyes right now from the work that FCNL has been doing, Friends Committee on National Legislation, your part in it, the inspirational and prophetic voices that have been going for these 75 years. It makes such a difference in the world and in my heart that you're doing this. I want to thank you, Christine Ashley. Again, she is Quaker Field Secretary for FCNL, the website fcnl.org, and Katie Breslin, who is the Young Adult Program Manager, for doing your work a couple years now. I'm sure that with the two of you putting your weight, your energy, your prayers in this direction, the world hasn't got a chance of stopping you. Thank you so much. Woohoo! Thank you for having us. Hope to be on again. Let us know. This was a great experience. And thanks to all the friends and friends of friends who are listening. And we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh.
with every song 